1 Corinthians 11 is our text this morning. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is a tough one. Uh, tough one for two reasons. Um, tough because uh, there are uh, multiple uh, interpretations of what these uh, words from Paul mean. So this passage is filled with, uh, with some pretty sensitive and even complex uh, conversation uh, to the Corinthian church. And secondly, what's challenging is, is how, to take, um, how to take a message that was for a particular church in a particular moment of time and to say, okay, how does this affect us now? I want to take just a second here to maybe talk about um, very important practice, and that's how we read our Bibles. So probably like most of us, when you, when you pick up your Bible, maybe the first question you ask, if not shortly after, is what does this mean for me? That, that's a fair assumption, right? Like you're asking, what does this mean for me? Or how can this help me? What, what, is, what is God wanting from me today? Nothing's inherently wrong with that question. Matter of fact, I think you ought to ask that question. However, I think there might be a question you ask before that that will help you and get you to asking, what does this mean for me? And that question is this. What did this mean for the original audience? So this, this text we have, this, this compilation of, of poems and songs and, and prophecy and, and wisdom, it had specific authors for specific audiences and our challenge today is understanding what did it mean then and how does it affect us now? That can be challenging, right? Like, it's like, have you, have you ever picked up and, and read maybe uh, a letter that your mom wrote to your dad or, or maybe, uh, you know, uh, read someone's, like a sibling's email? Yeah, you ever read a letter designed for someone else? There's, there's, there's interpretive challenges, when we're interacting with this particular passage, we have to understand that Paul is writing to a church at a certain time, in a certain place, that is largely influenced by the culture around it, by what life looked like in first century A.D. Corinth, a city that was affected both by uh, Grecian and Roman influence, culturally, theologically, However, you also have the influence of the Old Testament and Jewish practices. So you have this melting pot of culture where you have all these different streams of influence. And Paul is giving, led by the Spirit, a timeless message that we can glean from that's embedded in a context that is certainly different than ours. So I say all that to have you realize this, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, I think, this morning for us to say, okay, what does this mean for them? But also, how does it apply to us? But I think and I hope and I truly believe that because of God's grace, because of his spirit, because of the intellect that he has given you, I think we can come away this morning, not just understanding what Paul is telling us, but also walking away, understanding what God wants from us today as well. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, we need you this morning. Father, we ask that you give us the grace to hear, to listen, to understand. I pray that we would come away this morning more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
Do you remember when your parents would give you instructions on how to behave in particular places or circumstances? Like when you were a kid, did your parents ever tell you, now when we go to church, this is how I want you to behave. Maybe, maybe it's like at uh, a relative's home with your cousins. Uh, on, my, on my mom's side, we had several cousins. My mom uh, was one of six brothers and sisters. I remember one Christmas Eve, probably when I was like third grade, we were so rowdy upstairs, like this, this like sh- chandelier was shaking down below. And I remember that next Christmas Eve, my mom said, that happens again, Santa ain't coming. <laughs> It wasn't just like that. That was my interpretation of it. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, you've been given, in, maybe you've received or given instructions about how to, you know, behave in a grocery store. Uh, it's like you take your kids to the grocery store and it's just like food everywhere and they want to touch. And if you have kids like some of mine, they want to eat as well. And, 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 and we're, we're very concerned about behavior and deportment in particular places and circumstances. I think the struggle in those settings is not is often in, in how we receive that information. Because I think all of us would understand that certain occasions, certain settings warrant behavior. But often our struggle is, is how it's given to us. Oftentimes the why is left out. We just hear the what. And often the what is don't do that, stop yelling, don't run. You're like, ah, you know, it just, ah. What we find here in the text this morning is Paul telling the Corinthian church that how they worship matters. Paul is wanting this church to understand that the way we worship is important. Now, we're going to talk about some of those specific details that he gives to the Corinthian church. But I think just for a moment, if we step back, I think we'd all agree to this principle, at least to, to some degree, that the way we worship God should be important to us, right? Like when we're coming into a, a gathered setting where we are acknowledging that there's one Lord one Savior, one gospel, one spirit, one holy church, then we quickly realize maybe our preferences or, or our prerogatives should, should maybe take a back seat. And maybe we should be asking, what does God want from our worship opposed to maybe where we naturally go and how how do I want to feel or, or, or what, do I, what am I looking for? Paul, thankfully, has a heart here that's fueled by the gospel, filled by the spirit, and, and he is talking about the what of worship. But I think we would be remiss not to address the why first. We serve a holy God. We serve a God that does not do things by accident. We serve a God that is intentional and he has designed us as people to live all of our lives for his glory. And I think we would certainly agree that worship is not something that just simply takes place here on Sundays, but God has invited us into a life of worshiping him, living for his glory as we see in 1 Corinthians 10, and whatever we do, 
So even simple acts such as eating and drinking can be done, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to the glory of God. For this particular text this morning, Paul is wanting to speak to us not just on how we worship, but on, I think, the broader subject of God-honoring worship. A worship as his people that honors the Lord. So this morning from this text, from verses 2 through 16, we're going to see three, hopefully simple, succinct reasons that describe the importance of how we worship. We see, first of all, in our text this morning, That the way we worship matters. How we worship matters because God-honoring worship supports the order in creation. Specifically, Paul starts out in verse 2 by showing us that God-honoring worship supports the order in creation through the practices or what he calls the traditions used in worship. Let me point your attention to verse 2 here. And he begins with a commendation or praise for the, for the Corinthian church. He says, now I commend you. Here's why. Because you remember me in what? Everything. Now think about that. That's, that's, that's a pretty good commendation and praise for the church. He says, hey, you're recalling what I've told you. And you're not just recalling it. You're actually putting some action to it. And you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. These traditions refer to instructions that Paul had received from others and had passed on to the Corinthians. Specifically, this refers to traditions that have to do with worship. You see, largely the early church had only the Old Testament to inform the way they worshiped. However, because of the gospel and what we see now looking retrospectively, we know what happened in the Old Testament Testament, the old covenant, as Brent was talking about last week, is now transformed in the new covenant. And you know how churches like Corinth understood what was expected in worship? Through letters just like this. Like most of the mail we receive today, at least most of my mail in my, in my, uh, in my uh, mailbox at home is just junk, right? I mean, when you get mail at your home, I mean, I would say what? 80, 90% of it is just junk mail. Like how often do you get the mail out and like, you know, pitch, pitch, pitch. You might save one, maybe two things. Maybe sometimes you accidentally throw all of them away. Like we, like think about this. So can you imagine getting a letter from the Apostle Paul? <laughs> how cool would that be? I mean, it's, it is a hot letter. I mean, it's coming, it's, you know, hot off the press coming delivered to you. And so when they would receive this information from men like Paul, Paul was giving them apostolic instruction that he received from the Lord on matters of the church. And consequently, and apparently, the Corinthian church took and received and practiced those things well. Now what Paul is doing as he moves forward in this discussion is showing us that God-honoring worship supports the order in creation, not just through upholding the practices that we see in Scripture, but also through the relationships that are in the church. Look what he says here in verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand, so this is new information, 
This is something that he is, he is clarifying and giving as a means of instruction. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So we see here three dynamic relationships that Paul is describing to us that is trying to support this order and structure in worship. He first of all begins by pointing us to this relationship between man and Christ. And he refers that Christ is the what of man. Head. Now, this is where it's really interesting because this whole passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, is talking about heads. Physically, we're going to see in a minute, but also here metaphorically. This is a loaded term. And why this is loaded is, is due to the nature of what head is describing. And this is where some of the interpretational difficulties might, might, might slip in here. When you see this word head that Paul uses both here and later, when he's using it metaphorically, he's using it in a way to describe what authors and commentators suggest as uh, authority uh, of significance. Some commentators may say source. Some commentators may say prominence. I think for our discussion today, it's, it's probably best to settle on the definition of authority. And Paul says that Christ is the authoritative figure in the relationship towards man. That one's not hard for us to digest, is it? We all would probably agree with that pretty, pretty easily. How about this next one? The head, same word, of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So now all of a sudden we're introduced to another relationship where we find that the woman and the wife has a head, an authoritative figure in her life. And who is that authoritative figure that Paul draws reference to here? The husband or the man. Now, we're going to talk more practically about the delicate nature of this. But I want to just to pause for a moment and have us understand that the struggle that has been existing between man and woman, husband and wife, was not due to the original design of God. So when you look at Genesis chapter 2, you find this creation account that I want to read to you here just to understand the sensitivity to this, but also the biblical instruction that we can walk away with. It says in Genesis 2, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be what? Alone. So what is he going to do? I will make him a helper fit for him. So in that moment, we're starting to understand the intentions and the design of this original helper that's fit for Adam. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven. 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God took all of this, this dust and dirt and formed animals and birds and, and even a man. But out of that creation, God is saying there's not someone fit. There's not someone appropriately designed to live life with Adam. So what does he do? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So now we learn that Adam, man, has such a unique and distinct relationship to woman than he does with any other part of creation. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. So here in that moment, man, what a sweet picture we have. Here in this moment, we see this relationship with man and woman that's so distinct and separate from all other creation. And it's one in which is so special that every other man from that point on is instructed to leave his family, to cleave to his wife. And how is that relationship described? It's described as what? One flesh. So now all of a sudden, the distinction between two is not so much there. We're seeing this unity formed. But you know what disrupts and destroys that? Not God. Sin. And Satan, so much so that in Genesis 3.16, we see this curse given to the woman. And it says, God says, I will surely multiply your, chain, your pain in childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Are you ready for this? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So now this tension is brought into this significant light where we've seen now from the very dawn here of this creation after this moment of sin that there is a tension existing between man and woman. This was not how God designed it. He designed these two to have a sweet, you know, almost, if you will, symbiotic relationship together. Woman coming out of his, of his rib and that life was to be done where, where man would go and leave and cleave. They'd be one flesh. But now because of sin, you find tension. Now because of sin, you find this, this relationship that should have been sweet. It's marred. It's disrupted. And even has the potential of being destroyed. Why is all this significant? Because Paul here, and I'm suggesting a big picture, what Paul is looking to do in this passage is to show us that when we worship in the way that God has designed us to be as men, as women, when we worship in the way that God has designed us to be, we support the order that God brought into creation. It's only when we worship in disorder or out of the design that God has created, when we find that we present a confusing message. So the more we worship in tune with God's original design, what we find here 
the more we display to a watching world this order that God has bound in creation. Now, let's be honest. That's not easy to swallow, is it? Because we're seeing this level of submission. We're seeing authority when we as a culture and certainly as individuals crave equality. But notice here, this third relationship that's presented, it's not just the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, but the head of Christ is who? Now think about this for a moment. We are now introduced that even in the Godhead, there's submission. Even in the Godhead, you have the Son submitting to the authority of the Father. Why do you think that's so significant? I think it's significant because what God is demonstrating to us here, that in his design, it is appropriate. And matter of fact, it is woven into the fabric of all creation that there is, or we ought to be okay with, authority above us and submitting to that authority. Now, we don't like hearing that, right? <laughs> we don't like hearing that there is authority we have to submit to. But this is the point I believe Paul was making in showing us these relationships, and that is this. When we submit to the order in creation, in our worship, we're worshiping God in a way that honors him. We're going to talk practically about what this looks like, but I want to make, and I'm making time for this. This is such a key point. Because if we get this out of order, we're missing God's design for us. And that is to follow the order of creation specifically as we worship, submitting to those who have authority over us. I realize this is not necessarily the easiest thing to hear. Paul, thankfully, though, begins to clarify what he's beginning, what he's teaching the Corinthian church here as we continue on into verse 4. And we see that the way we worship matters because God honoring worship confronts the biases in culture and not only supports the order in creation, it's going to confront the biases in culture. Notice what he says here in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, and this is speaking publicly now in worship, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, what's that word say? Covered. Key thing here. What does that man do if he prays or prophesies with a covered head? He dishonors his head. So here's where we're seeing the physical and the metaphorical. When he prays, when a man has a covering, a veil, if you will, over his head, when he prays, he's dishonoring not his physical head, but his who? His spiritual head. Metaphorical here. What do we learn about the woman, the wife? But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, what? Uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was what? Shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Are you, are you confused yet? <laughs> All right, so I wanted to say this, and I want to be careful how I say this because I, I don't want to be irreverent. But um, Paul here is a single guy um, who is known for his straightforward talk. 
So have you ever been, um, and maybe, uh, maybe ask the women here, have you ever, as, as, as a woman, been told by maybe a male about how to look or behave feminine? Have you ever, any of you ever experienced that? Okay, is it a pleasant experience? Do they often like miss out on how to say things maybe kindly or gently or maybe even tactly? Sometimes maybe? Okay. When I'm thinking, when I've been reading through this, I'm thinking of this man. And again, I'm not trying to say what Paul was saying is inappropriate or irreverent. I think Paul's just cutting it straight. And he's wanting the women in Corinth, along with the men in Corinth, to understand how they worship matters. Specifically, that when they worship God in a God-honoring way, it's going to confront the biases in culture. When we see specifically the culture there, we're seeing that how they worship confronts the biases in culture regarding gender. Specifically, Paul is is giving instruction here that when men and women worship, they need to worship in a way that shows respects and pays homage to the gender that God created them to be. And this is how, in this culture and in this moment, these two things were distinguished. Specifically, that men would, would prophesy and pray with their head uncovered, and that women would pray with their heads covered. Now, as you can see, Paul has a nuanced description of what that covering looks like, specifically for women. I think ultimately what Paul is getting at here is he is wanting the Corinthian church to demonstrate to the culture what true masculinity looks like and what true femininity looks like. Because apparently even then, like we have today, there was confusion there was opinions about what gender, what the, the portrayal of gender looked like. So much so that even in this context, there were certain hairstyles that suggested a lack of biblical femininity. Now, I'm going to be honest, trying to take what we find here for the first Corinthian, for, excuse me, for the Corinthian church in the first century, and to make a direct line of application to like, all right, Maddie, I'm talking about your hair this morning. Like, like I don't know if that is 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 helpful or even what Paul has in mind. I think what Paul is suggesting here is not like here's the specific haircut you ought to have, but more an awareness of the way you look sends a message. And particularly, inviting and calling men into representing their head, respecting their head, along with calling women to, 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 repre- to, to represent and respect their head is absolutely appropriate in, appropriate in worship because it confronts the biases of culture. When we demonstrate biblical masculinity and femininity in our worship, we show to those around us, this is the design, the way God has made us, and it's good. And let's be honest, that, that's a message that needs to be heard today, but is that a message that would be well-received right now? No, not at all. 
Paul speaks not just to our gender, but even our roles in this worship. I want to read to you a helpful comment here from author Brian Rosner on on what Paul is talking about in this idea of image, in this idea uh, that that we're finding here about um, this this covering our head and and dishonoring our head. Let me me, me read this here too. I think it would be helpful. Author Brian Rosner notes that the image of God is interpreted in Psalm 8 as having to do with humanity being crowned with, 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 with glory and honor. Paul probably uses the term glory both because it is associated with image and because it is sometimes substituted for likeness or image in references to Genesis 1. So basically what we're going to find here, that as we continue in this passage, Paul is wanting us to understand that we don't just represent ourselves, but we represent God. Let's begin reading in verse 7. It says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But notice what he says, the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And he ends with this, because of the angels. Like, you know how, like, if you're ever, if you ever watch, like, a cartoon, there's that moment when someone, like, says something or does something, and there's that, like, that screeching halt noise, like, Arr! you know what I'm talking about? Yes? No? Okay, making sure. I, you're like, what are you talking about? Like, like, you know, or, like, even, like, if you're listening to music and they, like, they change, like, the track or, like, there's a different, you know, beat and there's, like, that halting noise. I feel like this is what's happening. They're like, Arr! because of the angels? Like, what, like what, what are we talking about, Paul? This passage, I realize, we're going deep here, but I think if we understand this, before I jump in, if we understand how we worship matters, because God-honoring worship, it supports the order in creation, but God-honoring worship, it confronts the biases in culture. The biases in culture that Paul is dealing with here have to deal with gender and have to deal really with gender roles. And this is what, this is what man and woman ought to look like when they worship. A man ought not to cover his head. He ought not to veil his head because he is the image or the glory of God. He is the representation in likeness of God. But notice when Paul says that women is the glory of man, it's, that does not mean that men are looking for their trophy wife, okay? It's not, that's not what, it's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that in the way that, that man is, is uniquely connected to the image of God, Obviously so equally as woman, but, but woman has this unique connection to man as well because of how she was formed. We saw that in Genesis 2. And then Paul says, for man was not made from woman, but women from man. Neither was man created for woman, but women for man. She was his helper, fit to work alongside him. And consequently, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. What Paul was saying is that because of this unique relature, this display of femininity that God has designed in the order of creation, when a woman would, in first century Corinth, when she'd worship without that veil, without that covering, it was a sign of independency, of rebellion, if you will. But Paul was saying, hey, because the way we worship matters, we're wanting to show the world around us what biblical masculinity and also femininity looks like. So, Adapt, 
culturally to a practice that displays appropriate femininity to those who are watching what worship looks like. I think we would agree with that, correct? We would agree that it is appropriate for a woman to be a woman and for a man to be a man. And I think that is at the heart of what Paul is getting at. And the challenge is when men and women don't act like men or women is when we send the confusing message. This is what Paul is confronting in the biases of culture that God has ordained an appropriate way for us to worship. It demonstrates our head and it shows respect to the God-given authority in our life. We find here the third reason that worship matters. That simply is this. God-honoring worship ultimately strengthens the relationship in the church. So what Paul is doing here in this passage, he's giving the Corinthians contextual information about how to worship that speaks to three spheres. Number one, speaks to the sphere uh, of creation speaks to the sphere of culture, and now speaks to the sphere of the church. This, this three, these three uh, you know, uh, spheres here of creation and the culture and the church is where our worship takes place. It's where our worship is demonstrated and displayed, and Paul wants us to understand that how we worship matters. It, it shows a pattern of creation. It, it confronts the biases of a sin-filled culture. But also, finally, it strengthens. When we worship in the way God wants us to, it strengthens the relationships in the church. Because now all of a sudden in verse 11, it's almost as if things changed, things pivoted. I neglected to talk about the angels. I'm sorry. I, I, as, I, as, I'm, as I picked up my text here, I might come back to that. I might just do it in a separate address, but just keep moving with me here. Verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, as if, not what he said wasn't important, but hey, this is the final thing I want you to understand. He says, In the Lord, woman is not what? Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So now all of a sudden, it seems like there's this shift where at once he was talking about like this, you know, if you will, this, this loose hierarchy of authority. But now we say, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're, we're looking at life not from a soft patriarchal Old Testament view, but in a new creation where man and women are not independent from one another, but they are interdependent. He says, for as man, excuse me, for as a woman was made from man, I love this, so man is now what? Born of a woman. So now all of a sudden Paul said, hey, hey fellas, <laughs> you know, I know what you were thinking right now, but I want you to understand that these women, this, this woman who, who, who was created from your flesh now is the one who bears you. Women are not to be cast aside or set aside as, as just mere objects. But these are so, the, the relationship between men and women in the church is so important, especially for how we worship. Because notice what Paul continues to say here. He says, and all things are of God and from God, excuse me. 
He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul says, he draws our attention once again to the subject matter, and he wants us to understand that these distinctions that were created in culture don't have to be a, a cause for disunity. They can actually be the means for great unity in this new community God has created. But the problem is for us, we often don't see one another in the way God designed us to. You know, often men, we see women as the objects of our pleasure or of our bidding. And unfortunately, women often see men as either barbaric or domineering or dumb or lazy. And all of a sudden, there's this, this, this divide. There's this, there's this problem in, in, in not just culture, but it seeped into the church. And we don't look at one another appreciating the differences, both in personality, but as Paul says, in design. However, we, because of the gospel, the thing that is making all things new, can look at one another and not just value each other, but also embrace the fact that we can worship together. Because don't forget, Paul isn't forbidding women from worshiping. Paul is saying when you do pray or prophesy, Here's how you can do it in a way that shows the world what God's design for the church and for the world really is. So let's not marginalize anyone this morning, but just look to embrace that God has given us some complex instruction for the way we worship. Paul says if anyone is inclined to be contentious, if anyone's like looking at this and being like, man, I'm not, I'm not feeling this. <laughs> I'm looking at this, and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not digging what you're saying, Paul. <laughs> what does he say to those people? We have no such practice, <laughs> nor do the churches of God. Like, this is where this is, kind of hits me. He writes this, and he's saying, this shouldn't be a point of issue for you. Like, this, this instruction, albeit as diverse and complex that it is. He's like, this, this shouldn't be a point of contention. This should be received well and applied. Apparently, whatever Paul had sent in the past, they did. Remember where verse two started? So we praise you for this. You took this, you received it, you applied it, these traditions, you maintained them. It says, you, you remember me in everything. And now he gives them another round of instruction. He's like, hey, if you're inclined to be like, I'm going to do my own thing, Paul. I'm not sure I feel this. He says, this is not who the church is. This is not how we're designed. This is not what we're supposed to do. I want to read to you a, a final closing thought here. It says, despite this passage obscurities, this is, once again, author Brian Rosner, a very helpful resource for this. He says, Paul's teaching in this passage clearly affirms three things. A balance between, number one, respect for a creation mandate to maintain and even celebrate the gender distinctions in which we've been created. Number two, 
our respect for culturally specific approaches to guarding moral and sexual purity. And number three, a commitment to fully integrating women and their gifts to the experience of the worshiping community. My heart is, this, my heart is that you took that away from this time together. That you didn't feel that women are marginalized, but are, are actually in, in so many ways you know, glorified in this passage for who God designed them to be. Secondly, I hope that you come away from this not feeling that we've exalted men above women. Because when you understand this new community that God is forming, there is an equality we all have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the beauty of this passage, and this is where I, I feel like I want to be so careful not to lose this, Paul is saying that men and women ought to be praying and prophesying together. They ought to be worshiping together. And when they do, how they do that matters. Because of the angels, I got back to it, hopefully naturally, or because of the angels, I appreciate that, because of the angels, was a reference to two different passages. Number one, Isaiah 6. If you're not familiar with that passage, the Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision. And you know what he sees in that vision? The throne room of God. And he sees these angels called cherubims flying around, cherubims and seraphims flying around. And you know what they're doing? They're covering their face with one set of wings. They're covering their feet with one set of their wings. And they're using their other wings to fly. And you know what's coming out of their mouth? That God is holy. They're seeing this picture that the worship of God matters. And in Acts chapter 13, we see another example of angels guarding, protecting the worship of God. It's when Herod, remember Herod, King Agrippa comes out and, and he makes this speech and you know what the people who hear this speech say? It's a voice like a God. So, like, that's, that's a special person. You know what he does? He doesn't defer it. Kind of like laps it up. And guess what happens? Dead. I don't, I don't know. I don't quite understand all of that to a degree in, in terms of the practical implications, but Paul is suggesting to us that the way we worship matters so much that God has revealed to us in his word and throughout creation a commitment to guarding and protecting his holiness, guarding and protecting his people's practices in worship. And he's wanting us to take seriously how we worship. Because when we worship God in a God-honoring way, it supports the order in creation, how God designed us. When we worship God in a God-honoring way, it confronts the biases of culture, which even though feel like they're ever-changing, what's happening here doesn't seem too different than now, does it? And ultimately, when we worship God in a God-honoring way, it strengthens these relationships here. One of the things I've been so thankful for is that God has given us Tori Hale. When Tori is leading our worship and participating on Sundays, I'm blessed and encouraged, aren't you? Can you like our church has grown in our love for God because of her. And if we were marginalizing not just her skills, but, but her love for God's word and for people, our church would not be what it ought to be. 
And this is a delicate dance, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, you might walk away with this being like, what does that even mean? And, and, and what is he even talking about? I get that. But I want to encourage you in that the reason we as a church take Scripture in the way we do, often verse by verse, book by book, is because the authority I want you to walk away with is not like, what does Pastor Ken think? But what does the Word of God say? And often we have to wrestle with difficult passages like this, like difficult passages like Brent had last week. And, and even though you might not walk out this morning, you know, warm and fuzzy, <laughs> um, and, and we've got some, I think, warm and fuzzy feelings coming up in the future for some of these texts we're encountering. But we have to soberly consider how we worship, right? It matters. God-honoring worship matters. And when we as a church embrace this and seek to love each, other, love each other and work with each other in this, we demonstrate to creation and to the culture around us the design and the order that God made us. And that to me sounds appealing. That to me sounds worthy. That to me seems like a pursuit that we ought to have.